Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm Charles Pryor, and you're listening to New Books in British Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. In his notes for a speech to be delivered in the House of Commons in the wake of American independence, the MP and imperial reformer Edmund Burke observed that some people are great lovers of uniformity. They're not satisfied with a rebellion in the West. They must have one in the East. They're not satisfied with losing one empire. They must lose another. Lord North will weep that he has not more worlds to lose. At its 18th century height, the British Empire extended its power over two vast indigenous spaces, one in North America and the other in India. The question of what this empire was and how it should be governed was a subject of intense debate in Britain. For decades, historians have maintained that the acquisition of vast territorial domains was unexpected and unplanned in a fit of absence of mind. James Vaughan is Assistant Professor of History at Ohio University. In the politics of empire at the accession of George III, the East India Company, and the crisis and transformation of Britain's imperial state, he offers a powerful challenge to the received view that the Asian domains were acquired by accident and formed part of an empire of liberty. By charting a fundamental shift in British politics during the 18th century, he reveals that the imperial project in India was defined by conquest and domination and driven by a new kind of politics. James Vaughn joins me from Athens, Ohio. Welcome to the podcast, James. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Um, I just want to start uh, with this notion of the first and second British Empire. The first empire is conventionally associated with uh, the American colonies, the second uh, with uh, India, and the turn to the Second Empire is normally understood to take place around the Revolution. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about uh, the premise that there was a crisis in the First British Empire. What was that crisis, and what drove it? Sure, ha- happy to. Um, so, as, as you said, these are sort of traditional distinction between the First and the Second British Empire. They're old-fashioned, and um, a lot of people have, you know, uh, essentially try to find alternative t- terminology, but they're kind of, they're sort of inescapable terms, meaning they're ones that um, capture uh, uh, an important shift, as you've already said, that takes place in British overseas expansion roughly in the uh, mid to late 18th century. And the crisis of the first British empire um, is basically understood broadly by historians to be uh a crisis of British commercial and colonial overseas expansion that takes place roughly in between the period of the Seven Years' War from 1756 to 1763 and the War of American Independence from 1775 to 1783. And the kind of general crisis has has generally been seen to be essentially in the aftermath of the Seven Years' War, 
um, the British, having run the global tables of empire against Bourbon France, face uh, the the repercussions of their tremendous success, which is they've acquired vast territory in the trans-Appalachian interior of North America, and with it control, direct rule and control over many Native American groups and societies. They've acquired through the East India Company, uh, territorial empire, direct rule over three provinces in Northeastern India, Bengal, Behar, and Arissa, and with it more than 20 million essential uh, um, uh, 20 million Bengali Muslim and Hindu peasants for the most part. And of course, they've also acquired Quebec, French Canada, and I believe the 60 or 70,000 so Quebecois settlers, um, and even some territory on the west coast of Africa, the basis of the British royal colony of Senegambia. And essentially, they have this vastly expanded empire now ruling over millions of subjects that are neither as traditionally understood to be British or Protestant colonial settlers, now including many South Asians, West Africans, Native Americans, French Catholics that they've never ruled over directly before. And there's an enormous expense of governing, garrisoning, administering, overseeing such an empire. And this is seen essentially to produce an imperial crisis and, and exactly goes back into Britain in a moment of debate and discussion. And what I'm trying to say in the book is this crisis of the British Empire, which has been very well mapped out by historians before me, it's a long running theme going back to the late 19th and early 20th century, is also a, 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 a crisis of politics within Britain, specifically the imperial politics, the, the policies and politics by which this vastly expanded, uh, uh, immensely costly empire is now organized and governed. And that essentially this crisis entails the passing away of one kind of imperial management, of imperial governance, um, what you might call or what Charles Kindleberger famously called the old regime of imperial governance and was ideologically understood in Britain to be an empire of liberty, an empire of commerce, trade, maritime naval supremacy, and land acquisitions only for the purposes of sending out British Protestant, largely British, largely Protestant settlers to set up colonies that were essentially mini versions of Britain, if you will, and the shift towards a new form of imperial governments, imperial politics, which is much one in which the distinction between metropole and periphery is much stronger. The idea of the metropole as subjugating the periphery is much stronger. And essentially, what was previously anathema in the old regime or the old style British imperial governance now becomes accepted, meaning direct autocratic rule over large non-British, non-Protestant populations and essentially pursuing an extractive political economy, not a political economy organized around the expansion of colonial production and trade, but rather increasingly a political economy organized around the ability to draw taxation and tribute from subject populations. Of course, trade, maritime supremacy, these things all continue, but with the crisis of the first British Empire and the coming into being of the second, there is a real shift, a, a new dimension is added, which is uh, the extraction of taxation and tribute from large indigenous, non-British, non-Protestant populations um, 
from North America to West Africa and above all else to South Asia, which is really the center of the second British Empire. Right. So this question of politics, then the the, the previous old politics um, in 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 the book, we're, we're basically looking at a Whig politics uh, that's that comes out of a series of events uh, that come at the very end of the 17th century, I suppose, the Glorious Revolution. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little about these these Whig politics in Britain and their their place in in British political life before the shift that that the book is is talking about. Happy to. Um, so, 18th century British politics has always been uh, a kind of di- difficult subject um, to write about and research about principally uh, terminologically, that is the terms one used to describe the party and factional politics of the 18th century, because 18th century Britain um, has it doesn't really have the kind of clear-cut political distinctions of the 17th century, where you had civil wars and revolutions and sort of roundhead versus cavalier, and then later around the time of the Glorious Revolution, Whig and Tory. And then in the 19th century, we have much clearer Whig Tory and eventually liberal conservative distinctions. The 18th century, uh, for the most part, leading politicians, leading and aristocrats and gentlemen who have parliamentary coteries and wider political support in the country at large, generally refer themselves as Whigs. Um, what's happened is effectively this, that roughly from the 25 years from the glorious revolution, 1688-1689, until about the Hanoverian secession and its immediate aftermath, 1714 to 1715, there had been an incredibly contentious politics between Whigs and Tories. Um, uh, essentially, we can, for purposes of, of our discussion now, let's refer to the Tories as the more conservative political faction, uh, more rooted in uh, the landed gentry, the Church of England, ostensibly pro-royalist, although really their allegiance is is, is more to the Stuarts than a Hanoverians, um, the House of Hanover. And then the Whigs understood broadly as the more liberal political faction committed more to latitudinarian, low church Anglicanism, toleration, um, rooted still in the landed elite, but with close linkages to the financial and commercial and manufacturing uh, middling sort and elites principally in the city of London. And that Whig and Tory factionalism is really powerful in the later 17th and early 18th century. But as many historians such as J.H. Plum have pointed out, following the Hanoverian secession, basically this intense party rivalry and factionalism gives period gives way to a period of Whig stability or Whig oligarchic rule, referred to by many different names, the Whig supremacy, the Whig oligarchy, the Walpolean oligarchy. I simply use in the book the term the Whig establishment. And what I mean by that is the way that the Whig party has become dominant and becoming dominant forms the establishment, controls the state, controls the church, controls the level of power, controls the levers of power and patronage, and essentially is able to build up 
not only do, do, do the Whigs control the ministries and all the resources at the Crown's disposal, but they're be able, be able to build up solid parliamentary majorities that they can return at elections every seven years. And this is a period of the Whig establishment. And this is basically a moderate Whiggery, a Whiggery that is no longer as radical as it was in the later 17th and early 18th century, when it stood much more for... Um, when, when at least there were certain, if it, uh, basically, if I put it this way, it's a Whig establishment that has become confident in itself, happy in its rule, and is sort of settled into a defense of the status quo. And what the status quo means is preserving the House of Hanover uh, the, on the throne of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and preventing the return of the House of Stuart, defeating Jacobitism also upholding private property and encouraging commercial and manufacturing development and uh, defending the country's religious settlement, which is essentially the Church of England remains the official established church, but there's a religious toleration that in practical civil society lights other non-Anglican groups, principally Protestant nonconformists, to practice their religion, but there's still broadly a kind of, um, if you will, uh, a religious apartheid in the sense that it, it's it's more difficult for non-Anglicans. I mean, it's difficult for non-conformists to hold office and it's impossible for, for non-Protestants really to hold office, civilian or military office. So we have this, this, this Whig establishment. Um, and I suppose the, 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 it's inflection through empire then is, I guess, one of the standard accounts, which, which says that the the British Empire up to the age of Walpole at least was Protestant, uh, maritime, uh, commercial, and free. Uh, so there was something. Uh, it was an empire, but it was an empire where common law values were exported to the colonies and 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 so on and so forth. But you mention uh, in your first uh, in the in the answer to the first question this big shift and. There is a shift um, where you have a, a sort of a global imperial contest um, in the middle of the 18th century. And in the book, you really, this is the period that you focus in on um, and pay uh, a tremendous amount of attention to. Uh, and this is the period between 1757 and uh, around 1765. You say this is the decisive period. These are the decisive years. Uh, why, why is that? Um, yeah, that that's a great question. Um, the reason why I do that is because generally, when people look at this shift from the the so-called first British Empire to the so-called second British Empire, that is an empire focused largely on colonization, settler colonialism in the Atlantic world, trade in the Atlantic world, towards um, an empire that is more oriented towards South Asia, is more oriented towards uh, military conquest, large-scale land acquisitions, um, beginning in northeastern India, but then spreading throughout South Asia. What they tend to do is to talk very broadly about um, the first British Empire of the later 17th through, say, the mid-18th century, and then a second British Empire of the later 18th and early 19th century. Um, and, 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 and that... There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, a lot of historians have drawn out the differences between those two empires, 
But the way, because they haven't done a detailed examination of the period in which this shift actually begins to take place, that is roughly the era of the Seven Years' War and its aftermath, roughly the period, let's say, 1755 to 1770, because there hasn't been a sufficient, I think, detailed examination of that period, it's allowed to a certain, a certain interpretation to remain basically what I would call the unconscious of British imperial historiography. And if I could just unpack that a bit, what I mean is essentially this, that a very long time ago, J.R. Seeley, uh, uh, the founder of modern imperial history, referred to the beginnings of this second British empire rooted in beginning in northeastern India and then expanding to be the entire British Raj of India, that this empire was essentially founded in a, a fit of absence of mind, meaning basically that men on the spot, merchants and adventurers associated with the East Indian Company in the context of the breakdown of the Mughal Empire, pursued their own interests, entered into geopolitical rivalry on the subcontinent, and on the other side of that men-on-the-spot activity and geopolitical rivalry, there emerged the East India Company in control of uh, a effectively a territorial dominion in Bengal, and that British uh, ministers and officials back in West uh, Whitehall and Westminster in the, the Crown and Parliament effectively had to accept this as a fait accompli um, and had to ex post facto come up with uh, appropriate policies, rules, ordinances for managing and maintaining this. And, and so that has also been linked to, and that's very specific to India, but there's also another part of what I would call the unconscious interpretation of this shift between the first and second empire, which is roughly that there was no discussion or debate. There was no action or activity at the Metropole that really informed it. Rather, Britain having, as I already said, run the tables against Bourbon France in the Seven Years' War, having won everywhere from Canada to the Caribbean, crossing the Atlantic to West Africa, further afield eastward into the Indian Ocean, the Pacific, had acquired all these territories and populations from France and Spain uh, effectively unintentionally. And now had to face th th this vastly expanded empire with incredible costs of governance and garrison. And so basically, essentially stumbling, absentmindedly, uh, 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 unintentionally into this new form of imperial governments that embraced greater autocracy, greater, uh, greater political autocracy, greater economic extraction, um, greater subjugation of the colonial periphery, the imperial periphery, to metropolitan authority. The reason, Charles, why I focus on this period of roughly 1755 to 65 so carefully, that 10 years basically immediately preceding and following the Seven Years' War, is I think the, the, the element that has been missing is not the, the broad story is true. There's no grand plan at the beginning of the Seven Years' War to run the tables against Bourbon France and Bourbon Spain and to acquire all of these new territories and all of these new subject populations and to therefore vastly increase their taxes and debt. They go into the war to defeat France and later to defeat Spain. And in doing so, they acquire all these populations. But I think uh, really back in the metropole, as news of these things come in, there becomes a genuine political debate and discussion over what to do about it. And I don't think the form of imperial governments 
that ultimately took hold by the mid to late 1760s was like the weather was uncontrollable by the by the activity of human beings. I think that what a lot of historians have missed is while the problems of empire were created unintentionally, the resolutions, the answers to those problems were actually produced out of metropolitan political conflict, discussion and debate, that there was a mind to history, if you will, where there were different options on the table for imperial governance. There were different forms of policies and politics that could have taken effect. And one form of policies and politics won out over another. And I think it's impossible to understand why one won out of another as a simple kind of unintentional reflex, like when a doctor taps your knee. Rather, it was a real self-conscious, a self-aware discussion and debate amongst metropolitan statesmen, officials, uh, out of do- out of parliament politicians, um, and 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 one side won out over the other sides, and that's why I think the empire took the shape it did. So, so uh, my own view is that one really has to understand these roughly ten years, seventeen fifty five to sixty five, in a great deal of detail in terms of metropolitan politics. Right. So then you in this period, then I guess the the options are debated, but the the one that comes into a, a position of dominance is something that you label uh, new Toryism. Um, and we just happen to be recording this on the day of the United King- Kingdom elections in December of 2019. We don't know what the outcome is going to be. Uh, but this new Toryism comes along. Um, historians of 18th century Britain, with one maybe one notable exception, haven't been comfortable uh, with Toryism. Uh, as a political creed uh, that can be analyzed, uh, but you do, um, and you call it the new Toryism. Uh, what defines this new Toryism that emerges in the 1760s? Uh, the, the, um, so to sort of preface that, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. A lot of historians have been comfortable. I, I have taken it on as, as really a provocation. Um, there's a very famous essay, I believe by Ian Watt, was there a new Toryism at the accession of George III? He famously answers it, no. I'm trying to famously answer it, not, sorry, I'm trying to answer it, not famously, perhaps infamously, or perhaps, <laughs> or perhaps simply the fade to black, I'm trying to answer it, yes. Um, right. But, but I'm, I, you know, cards on the table, and I hope this can't, comes across in the book, I, it's not a term that anyone at the time would have accepted. It's a complete self-conscious anachronism on my part, meaning I am self-aware creating a category that no one at the time would have accepted. It's, It's very much the opposite of an actor's category. Why am I doing that? Why have I created this term new Toryism, even though I'm aware that that it's not in the sources, that no one of the time would have accepted it? And then, in fact, people would have been appalled by being called Tories or new Tories, because essentially, if uh, hopefully I'm not going too long a digression here. But no, for a very long time in, in British political historiography, there was a dominance of something called the Whig interpretation associated with Edmund Burke. Thomas Babington Macaulay, Trevelyan, et cetera, et cetera. And the Whig interpretation essentially said that with the victory of parliament in the glorious revolution, there is established a parliamentary supremacy and a constitutional monarchy. And there comes into place cabinet government with opposing parties and essentially uh, prime minister or first minister responsibility to parliament, etc. And what happened 
in the the reason why there was so much difficulty, ultimately the reason why the American colonies are lost is because when George III comes to the throne in October 1760, he has been raised principally by his advisor, the Earl of Butte, in a very different style of politics, a kind of secret, almost not Jacobitism, but royal absolutism. And he attempts to pursue unconstitutional government or what would have been understood in the 18th century as arbitrary power that is ruling through his own personal kingship and the resources available to the crown rather than with Whig ministers in parliament. And this creates a political crisis at home with the rise of John Wilkes and the Wilkesite movement and parliamentary reform movements. And it creates a political crisis abroad, principally with the colonial American resistance movement and eventually the American Revolution. And that Whig historiography, that Whig view that a basically a Tory and even more kind of closet absolutist monarch and his immediate king's friends pursued this alternative project that caused all this crisis until basically the British monarchy could be brought back under good constitutional parliamentary government. That historiography was dominant really into the early mid 20th century in which a very famous historian, Sir Louis Namier, exploded that historiography by showing it just wasn't true that George III operated within the, 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 the levers and powers of constitutional royal government. George III worked with parliament, that nothing that bothered anybody in the imperial crisis, also the colonial Americans, was done other than through parliament. And furthermore, that all the leading political players understood themselves as Whigs and largely viewed the term Tory as a pejorative to call their enemies. So for instance, William Pitt the Elder and George Grenville both absolutely understand themselves as Whigs, but both privately, well, actually publicly in parliament, but privately in correspondence, attack each other as enemies or as Tories, as pejoratives. You're, so Tory has largely become a pejorative. Um, the problem that I have with this is not that Sir Louis Namier wasn't correct. He was. But what happened then slowly, with the exception of, of some important work by the likes of, say, John Brewer and others, slowly what happened is the idea that there was systematic, principled ideological conflict at the time of the imperial crisis, at the time of the Seven Years' War and the first decade of George III's rule, fell away. And what I, what I recognize going back in the sources, while all of these people call themselves Whigs, and they use Tory as pejorative, and they have lots of different factions and parties, and in no way can there be understood to be two parties contesting Whig and Tory. Nevertheless, they did. there were systematic divisions in ideology and political principle. That is, they had very different views about the relationship between the domestic British state and the society over which it ruled, and the relationship between the imperial apparatus of the British state and the colonial or imperial subject populations over what it ruled. And I found that in the time of the imperial crisis, although there are always never really two diametrically opposed tendencies, there are always multiple different tendencies, that nevertheless, there came to be increasingly two opposing views of how the British imperial state, what the British imperial state's relationship to this vastly expanded, this vastly enlarged empire should be. And effectively, I, I, I understood one of those approach as a radical Whig, that is departing from the Whig establishment in a more radical reforming direction. And I understood another of those approach as what I called self-consciously anachronistically new Toryism. And what I mean by that is the way in which elements 
of the old regime of the Whig establishment recognize that things can no longer go on the way they have at home in Britain or abroad in the British Empire. But if the if the status quo is to be preserved, there must be increasingly autocratic and extractive measures pursued. So what I mean by the new Toryism is in essence of this, those elements of the political establishment of the court of George III, the more conservative members of the Whig establishment, and of what I, I view the more conservative elements of the patriot opposition, they essentially come to think that liberty has gotten out of hand in Great Britain, that it's become licentiousness. It's not a well-ordered liberty, that the, the population has lost its deference to its betters, the landed elite, the gentry, and the aristocracy that governs in parliament, has lost its deference to the crown and its ministers, George III and his advisors, that the empire is out of control, merchants, smugglers have, have, have violated longstanding laws of trade and navigation, that uh, East India Company employees are not listening to their superiors in London, that effectively they, by 1765, they come to view the entire chessboard of British politics at home and abroad as essentially one in which liberty has been overtaken by licentiousness. And they don't want to return to some kind of absolutist or medieval government, but rather they recognize to maintain the political establishment, to maintain uh, uh, parliamentary government, constitutional monarchy in control of a landed oligarchy and to maintain an empire which metropolitan authority actually is able to, to have its directives followed, they need to pursue new autocratic extractive measures. And, and these are the people that I refer to as the new Tories. And, and essentially, and, and I wasn't the first to see this, there's a story named Charles Richardson who really sees the group of people, the kind of uh, conservative elements of the Whig establishment of the Patriot opposition and the court of George III that I'm calling the new Tories, he pointed out many decades ago that, that basically the ideology of government, both at home and abroad, that forms around them is going to be the seedbed of what eventually becomes early 19th century Toryism. Because of course, it's a standard of British political historiography and I don't agree with it. Uh, sorry, I, I don't disagree with it. I in fact agree with it that really people aren't able to self-confidently refer to themselves as Tories again until basically the, the era of the French Revolutionary Napoleonic Wars, really not until roughly the very early 19th century. I believe, uh, I'm, not, I, I'm not sure if I'm remembering this right, I think it's in 1807 that you get people in that parliamentary election, if there is one in that year, where people really are willing to emphatically stand as Tories. So there's this, there's this massive shift um, towards um, a politics of empire then that's really uh, in favor of much more direct autocratic rule, as you've mentioned, um, and, and, and sort of state-driven control that this, the, of the sort that, that's tried in, in the American context, uh, uh, but which, which is resisted with, with disastrous results. But turning back uh, towards Asia, what, what does the story then of the, the East India Company and the, the new Toryism uh, of metropolitan control as opposed to sub-imperial control, what does it reveal about commerce and empire after the American Revolution? What, what characterizes that, that next phase? Uh, th that's a good question. I mean, of course, um, 
trade, the expansion of commerce, colonial and commercial expansion do not cease after the shift from the first to the second British Empire or after the ascendancy of what I call the new Toryism. They continue. Of course, 13 eastern seaboard colonies in the Atlantic world are lost, but there remains obviously the the, the Caribbean colonies largely organized around sl- slave sugar plantations. And of course, there continues even faster pace, the development of commercial colonial expansion in Asia. Obviously, um, commercial expansion throughout South and East Asia, and of course, colonial expansion into the Antipodes precedes apace. But what, what is featured in this second British empire, this empire centered on it, really South Asia, is territorial conquest. That is military conquest over vast territories with vast indigenous populations, millions and millions of millions of largely peasant subjects, and the extraction of tax and tribute from them. And what effectively happens is uh, the old Whig establishment, if I can sort of just backtrack a bit, Robert, uh, Robert Clive famously defeats uh, Suraj Adala and the forces, uh, he's the Nawab or ruler of Bengal, Suraj Adala, and, and his forces are defeated by Robert Clive, who's leading the East India Company's military forces into battle into battle at the Battle of Plassey in 1757. And after victory at Plassey, Clive essentially tries to sell metropolitan ministers and officials on using the the East India Company's new position of strength in Bengal to consolidate a territorial empire that will effectively be able to extract taxes and tributes just like the old Mughal rulers and Nawabs did, but can now pump part of this tax and tribute back to the East India Company, back to British uh, society and politics more generally. And this is rejected by the old Whig establishment precisely because it's a form of imperial rule anathema to them. They believed broadly in what they ideologically understood as an empire of liberty, an empire of trade, of naval supremacy, in which you had landed acquisitions, in which you either displaced the indigenous population the way British settlers had expropriated Native Americans in North America, or you took land that was relatively uninhabited and you turned them into farming settlements for uh, uh, British immigrants, effectively. And that was the empire of liberty. It was, it was believed that empire had minimal costs of governance and rule. You didn't need vast standing empires and those uh, vast standing armies to rule those empires. There was no Roman or Persian or Spanish-style imperium. They, the old Whig establishment viewed that as too costly and too tending towards autocracy and extraction. And they viewed the empire as maximally beneficial to Britain insofar as it furthered the development of commerce and manufacturing in Britain by creating colonial plantation settlements that could purchase goods manufactured in Britain and that could develop staple products or raw materials that were other, otherwise unavailable in Britain. And otherwise, if, if, if they, they really didn't want landed acquisition. They wanted commerce and, and maritime supremacy. They wanted a royal navy that was essentially master of the seas that kept the markets and sea lanes of the world open for unlimited British commercial expansion and manufacturing exports. The new Toryism, w- w- with the ascendancy of the new Toryism, you essentially now get support for Clive's project 
because the directors of the East India Company until roughly 1764 had been allies of the old Whig establishment and had been opposed to Clive wanting to create a territorial empire in Bengal because they were commercial merchants. They operated out of the city of London. They cared about shareholder value and they didn't want the East India Company getting involved in massive issues of governance and garrisoning and standing armies in Asia. Um, and, and so they opposed Clive's project and effectively, though, with the ascendancy of the new Tories, particularly in the ministries of Butte and then later Grenville, you get real support. And it's really in the Grenville ministry for Clive's takeover of the East India Company. The merchants and shareholders that take over the East India Company are essentially Clive loyalists. They support his return to Bengal. And on his return to Bengal, he acquires the Devani, the right, the the, the mogul a uh, 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 territorial grant that gives the company the right to act as tax collector, effectively sovereign ruler in Bengal, Bihar, and Orissa. And the East India Company had been offered that Devani grant three times before under the old commercial merchant directors of the East India Company and under the old Whig establishment in Westminster and Whitehall. And on those three occasions, it had been rejected. But now Clive gets it offered a fourth time and effectively acquires it from the Mughal Emperor Shalom II. And effectively, what he what 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 the Granville Ministry and Clive's um, the Cliveite Directorate in the East India Company want to do is effectively have a territorial empire in India that is capable of raising taxes that will self finance that will support the maintenance of a large army in India capable of maintaining rule over Bengal, Bihar, and Orissa, and if need be, projecting British power to defend British trade, British investment, etc. And in their view, there's about 4 million, they, Clive estimates they'll get 4 million pounds sterling a year, 2 million pounds sterling is necessary to upkeep British imperial administration and the vast standing army in northeastern India, and then they think they can send 2 million pounds back to the East India Company and more broadly through the shareholders, merchants, and financiers in the East India Company to the national debt and the fiscal military state in Britain. Um, that, of course, does not work out as they planned, but in successfully consolidating the East India Company's rule over three provinces in northeast North, North India, they bring into and put at the heart of the British Empire direct military conquest, territorial rule over vast 20 million and more non-British, non-Protestant indigenous populations, which have no representation in imperial government. Unlike in the Atlantic world, there are no assemblies of local elites, settlers, etc. The zemindars, the, the, the Bengali aristocrats and, and landlords that um, effectively rule with the East Indian Company rule as bureaucrats, not as uh, 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 genuine legislatures or political advisors actually involved in the governance of the country. Rather, they largely have a bureaucratic relationship to the new imperial regime, which is very top down and it's extractive, meaning it seeks to pump out as much re it seeks to draw revenue out of the peasant population as much as possible in order to maintain its own administration and army. And in order to as uh, pump back um, uh, wealth to the East India Company in the city of London. And of course, um, while doing all of this, it continues to support commercial expansion, financial and investment operations throughout the Asian world. But if just I realize I've gone on at some length here just to conclude at this, um, essentially, 
what what happens is you have a, a colonial American resistance movement and an American revolution that has effectively rejected the creation of a standing army, which uh, in in the American colonies, which would have effectively have allowed British ministers and officials to rule those colonies without much influ- influence uh, from colonial assemblies and legislatures. But in India, you have the creation of a standing army of indigenous troops ruled by a British officer corps that effectively governs without any local checks, either from uh, uh, initially from courts and really not for a very long time from legislatures. I've been talking to James Vaughn, who's assistant professor of history at Ohio University. The book is called The Politics of Empire at the Accession of George III, and it's published by Yale. It is a sweeping, analytically sophisticated, uh, revisionist but respectful uh, rethink of a crucial juncture in British imperial history. Uh, one that fits together with a broader global history of empire and the central conundrum of the sort that Burke himself was perplexed by, and that was, was it possible to have empire and liberty all at the same time? James, I appreciate your time. Thank you for talking to us today. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. 